0: Luke chapter 2, 6 through 7, and while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. Hey everybody, good morning, and <clears throat> welcome to Christ Community Chapel, really, really glad that you're here, uh, thanks for coming, welcome those of you at our east service those of you who are tuning in online, uh, Welcome. All right, let me start out uh, with a just because story. Uh, One of the things that has always been important to our church is that we uh, be a blessing to our area, to our community. And one of the ways that we do that during this particular time of year is we each try to do at least one random act of kindness or generosity uh, before Christmas. And when we do that, whatever kind of uh, action we do, we give the person a card and it says just because. And on the back of the card is a way for them to write the story, this recipient, to write the story of what has happened to them. So this is the story I have for you today. This is from uh, Brandy in Streetsboro. She says, on December 10th, I was at Streetsboro Walmart with my 10-year-old daughter And my soon-to-be two-year-old great-nephew that I have custody of. Okay, just stop there and think about what her life is like. Ten-year-old daughter and then a two-year-old great-nephew that she's getting custody of. And she was shopping for groceries. This gentleman walked up to me, handed me two $10 bills with a card wrapped around it. And I asked him, why me? And he said, because he wanted to. Thank you, that made my day. My 10-year-old daughter was so happy, she couldn't believe what just happened. Thank you. All right? Uh, Great job. Let's all try to do just one, just one between now and Christmas. Uh, Do a random act of kindness to kind of raise the temperature of goodness in our area. All right? Okay, so this is uh, the third week of Advent, and we finish up the series next Saturday on Christmas Eve. And uh, this is, uh, I love this time of year, and I love this time of year, I think, in part because this Christmas carries with it a tradition of giving gifts, and uh, gift giving is a way of, of it's a concrete expression of love, and I think people are either at their very best or their very worst during Christmas. Most people are at their very best because we give gifts. You are at your very best. I am at my very best when I am expressing genuine love. And I think that's true because we are made in the image of God. And when we are loving someone else, we are reflecting His image because that's the way God loves us. God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, Jesus, for us. Now, I was talking to a friend last week who has just now come into a relationship with Jesus and uh, it's a great story. He was slowly but surely drawn into the deep love of God through Jesus, and his life has radically changed. And he came up to me uh, or last week, and he said, hey, my wife and I are thinking about giving a gift to the church, not that you need it, right? And I wish I'd been thinking clearly, because I would have said to him, oh, don't give because we need it or don't need it. You give because you have this desperate need to express love to this God who loved you so much that while you were still a sinner, he gave his son to die for you. Give for that reason. I don't give my kids Christmas gifts because they need them. I give them because my heart desperately needs to express the love I have for them. So this year, be at your very best. Love joyously. Give generously. Okay, that's my little pastoral moment for today. All right, third week of Advent. We are covering Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. We just had it read to us, but let me read it again because it's a short passage. This is what it says. In those days, the decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee From the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. To be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. I love Luke. Luke is the author of this, the gospel that bears his name. He's also the author of the book of Acts. Uh, Luke is the best historian of any of the gospel writers. And he includes a ton of detail. And the reason that's important is uh, details are important if you're defending the Bible. Because details can be used to either prove that a story is true or prove that a story is false. Like, if your teenager comes home late and you want to know where they've been, uh, what's the best way to find out? Well, probably torture or truth serum. But if those are not available to you, then you ask questions, right? You look for details. Where were you? What did you do? Who else was there? Who left first? Details. Look at all the details that Luke includes just in the first seven verses when he's talking about Jesus' birth. I was thinking, if if somebody ever wrote a a biography of me, if they included my birth at all, there'd be very few details. They would say, you know, Joe Coffey was born in Louisville, Kentucky, the second son of Joan and Roland Coffey. He was average height, average weight. Nothing else is known because that's all I know, right? (laughs) Here, Luke talks about Caesar Augustus, talks about Quirinius, talks about a registration, talks about this trek that they had to make from Nazareth to Bethlehem. He talks about the lineage of Joseph and Mary. He talks about what Jesus wore, that they wrapped him in swaddling cloths, that they laid him in a manger. Details, details. But Luke is not just a historian. He's a teacher, And he's just using all these details to teach us something. And I want to just look at the last detail he gives in these seven verses and talk about what Luke is trying to teach us. This is what it says in verse 7. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. There's no place, no room. No room for Jesus. So, here are my three points. If you are a note taker, you can write these down or just know where I'm going. I want to talk about why there's no room for Jesus, what it means to make room for Jesus, and how we make room for Him. Why there is no room, what it means to make room, and how we make room. First, why there's no room for Jesus. All right, so. Mary and Joseph come to Bethlehem, right? And, and they, uh, they, the more I thought about this particular detail, the more wildly important it became because it means that Jesus was rejected from the get-go. You see that, right? I mean, this, was so, this had to be so shocking to Mary and Joseph because uh, Mary, nine months earlier, had an angel appear to her. All right, hard stop. Right? Mary had an angel appear to her. Whenever an angel appears anywhere in the Bible, the first thing the angel has to say is, don't be afraid. <laughs> don't, it's okay. It's okay. Because they're so overwhelming. Mary has this angel appear to her and the angel says to her, you are the most favored of all women, for you're going to give birth to a son. All right, he is going to reign on his father David's throne forever. Of his kingdom, there will be no end. He is Emmanuel, God with us. Call him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. What? Right? And then God gives Joseph a divinely inspired dream to tell him basically the same thing. Now, ladies, let me ask you this. If an angel appeared to you and said you were the most favorite of all women and you were going to give birth to a son, how do you think your pregnancy would go? Right, don't you think it would be the smoothest pregnancy in the history of the world? At eight months, then you get notified that you have to make this journey 70 miles south on foot. You finally get to Bethlehem completely exhausted, your legs aching, your ankles swollen, right? But at least you're looking forward to what God, the provision that God has planned for this very, very, very special child. And so you knock on a door. And the guy opens the door and he goes, no room, lady. There's a shack out back. You can use that. There's a stable. Might be some animals, might be a camel in there. Right? You wanna go, really, really? Jesus came knowing he was going to be rejected from the very beginning, and he came anyway. Amazing love. How can it be? Let me give you at least two reasons why people have no room for Jesus. One is what they don't see, and the other is what they see, and this is what I mean. First, what they don't see. Human beings as a species are very superficial. I don't know why we're so shallow, why are there, we're so superficial, but we are. You can tell by uh, how important you know, professional athletes are to us, or movie stars, pop stars. We pay them enormous amounts of money. We give them platforms of influence. Well, the people who really matter, who really care for us, protect us, teach our children, keep the lights on, we just kind of ignore. Right? We are an inch deep and we see an inch deep. I read this story two weeks ago. It's a great story. It happened in World War II. True story. Let me read it for you. It says, during World War II, a man named John Blanchard was a lieutenant in the Navy. At one point, he had a chance to use a library, got a book out of the library that had belonged to someone else. Even though he liked the book, the thing he really liked was the notes in the book. A woman who lived in New York City had written all the notes in the margin, and he loved them. He was intrigued by the wisdom and the insight of those notes, was attracted to the person who wrote them. Her name was on the inside of the book. He could tell it was from New York City, so with a little effort, he discovered where she was and he wrote her. Her name was Hollis Mainel. He wrote her and they began to write back and forth. During the war, they had this wonderful correspondence and it turned into an incredibly deep friendship. He had the utmost admiration for her, also had an imagination for her. He asked her for a picture. She never sent him one. Anyway, finally, the war was over. He was coming back. He was going to meet her at Grand Central Station at a particular spot at 7 p.m. She wrote him the last letter and said, hey, we don't know what we look like. I don't know what you look like at all, but here's what I'll do. I'll stand in a particular place. You'll know me because I'll be wearing a, a great big red rose on my lapel. So he gets out of the train. He walks over to the spot, He sees actually two women there, one woman beautiful, the other woman much dowdier, much older, much heavier than he imagined, wearing a big red rose. He stopped in his tracks. The pretty woman walked away. The woman with the red rose stood there looking for somebody. And he said, I was split. I, I felt choked up by the bitterness of my disappointment, but so deep was my longing for the woman whose spirit had companioned me and upheld me during my time at war, I thought, well, this won't be love or romance. But it could be something so precious, maybe a friendship, for which I would always be grateful. So he summoned up his courage, swallowed hard, walked over and said, Hello, I'm Lieutenant John Blanchard. You must be Hollis. I'm so glad to meet you. May I take you to dinner? She smiled and said, Son, I have no idea who you are or what this is really about. But the young lady was just standing here beside me, who walked away, said I should wear this red rose on my lapel, and only if you were to ask me to dinner, I should tell you she's waiting for you in the restaurant across the street. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Zach, that's going to be made into a Hallmark movie like next week. Yeah. The reason that's so, you know, that touches us is because John Blanchard, you know, he, he moved a little further, just a little further than an inch deep. He didn't see this woman who had meant who he knew was beautiful on the inside. He didn't just see her on the outside and walk away, right? I think people look at Jesus and they just see him on a superficial level. What will Jesus do for me right now? What can he do for me to make my life better now? I always think of Matthew chapter 9. In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus heals a paralytic. Before he heals him, when he first sees him, he says this, son, your sins are forgiven you. I'm sure everybody there was kind of going, okay, but what are you going to do about his legs? Right, but which was more important? That guy's been dead for 2,000 years. He's been dead for 2,000 years. What was more important? That his sins were forgiven for all of eternity or that he could walk the last 25 years of his life? We are an inch deep. We see an inch deep. That's one reason there's no room for Jesus. But I told you there were two reasons. The other reason I'll just touch on, because Zach hit it last week, is that there, there was a guy, or when I say that you see, that some people see too much with Jesus, but I, there was a, the guy who was a king when Jesus was born was Herod. And when Jesus was born, Herod realized there was only room for One king, and so he decided to try to kill Jesus. And in some ways, Herod had it right. Like with Jesus, it's kind of either you or Jesus that's going to be in charge of your life. And so some people don't make room for Jesus because they see him as a threat. And that brings me to my second point is what to do to make room for Jesus. So the innkeeper opens the door and he doesn't know what he's seeing, right? He just, he misses it completely. But my question is, what if he did see him? What if he did see Jesus the way Mary saw Jesus? Because Mary, when the angel appeared to Mary in Luke chapter one, this is what the angel told her, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Right? If if the innkeeper really saw that, what would he do? What would you do? What would you do if you heard a knock on your door? You open the door and there's somebody of unimaginable importance and majesty. You know what you'd do? You'd say, oh, please, please come in. Come in. And as soon as you did that, you'd turn around and try to see what kind of mess you were inviting them into. Right? And those are the two things. If you're going to make room for Jesus, you have to see him for who he is. And then see yourself for the mess you are. First, see him for who he is. That sounds simple enough, but it's not that simple course. There's a movie called Talladega Nights. Right? Don't don't worry about seeing the movie. It's a spoof on NASCAR. It's this comedy. Will Ferrell plays a driver named Ricky Bobby. And in one scene in the movie, uh, Ricky Bobby is uh, is praying. He's uh, saying grace over the food. And when he prays, he starts out by saying dear Lord, baby Jesus. And then all throughout the prayer, he's referring to Jesus as baby Jesus. And finally, his wife interrupts him. And she says, honey, uh, Jesus grew up. He's not a baby anymore. You don't have to keep referring to him as baby Jesus. And then Will Ferrell, Ricky Bobby, says to his wife, well, uh, when I say grace, I like the Christmas Jesus best. Right? If, when you say grace, you can say it to the grown-up Jesus or the teenage Jesus or the bearded Jesus or whatever Jesus you want. Right? The whole reason the writers put that section in the movie Is because comedy takes a truth that people recognize and then they blow it to the extreme. That's what comedy is. So what they were doing is taking the truth that everybody recognizes and the truth is this, that we all tend to make Jesus into what we want him to be. We make Jesus somebody we're comfortable with. And that's what's interesting about the Christmas story. You have the innkeeper who doesn't know what he's seeing. You have Herod who sees Jesus as a threat. And then you have the magi who come and they fall down on their knees and they worship Jesus. You know, it's like Goldilocks and the three bears. There you go. One that misses him, one that rejects him, and then one that falls down and worships him. If you are going to see the real Jesus, then you will see somebody worth falling down and worshiping. But you will also have to take a look at yourself. Like when I'm sitting around my house, I hardly ever pay attention to what I'm wearing or what the house looks like until I hear a knock at the door. You know, I hear a knock at the door, I go to the door, open it up, and I go, and if the person wants to come in, I'm like, ooh, man, I don't even know what, what you're coming into, right? That's the way it is with Jesus. Which brings me to my last point, is how do we how do we do it? How do we make room for Jesus? So in this story, you have this innkeeper, right, who who doesn't See Jesus for who he is. Right? And, and in this, when you get to the how to do it, the thing you have to do is to invite Jesus in. The most amazing thing about Jesus is that he knocks. Right? I wouldn't knock if I was Jesus. I just wouldn't. I remember when my kids were teenagers and at home, and they were feeling uppity. You know how teenagers get a little uppity? I would tell them, listen, you guys need to know, you don't own anything. Like you think those are your clothes? Those aren't your clothes, those are my clothes. I bought them, they just fit you, right? That room you call your room? That's not your room, that's my room, right? I just let you live in it rent free. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, man, what a great dad. I wish he was my dad, right? How much more if I was Jesus? Right? If you're Jesus, everything belongs to you in the entire universe. And he knocks. That's what it says in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, opens the door, I will come in to him. Why does he knock? Well, you know why. Zach told you last week. God's glory, your goodness are connected. You're at your very, very best when you're expressing genuine love. You were made to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love other people. That's what heaven is like. That's what you will be like when you are perfected. You will be loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving everyone else. Jesus knocks because he's inviting you to relationship with him. It's the only way you ever become what you were created to become so Jesus knocks. But you have to let him in. But when you let him in, you're letting him into the mess that is you. And Jesus doesn't stand there and wait for you to clear off a a place on the couch so he can sit. Jesus comes in to help you clean up everything because Jesus plans to stay. Jesus isn't somebody who comes over to your house every Sunday and then goes back to wherever he lives and you get to live your life the way you live it. When Jesus, when you invite Jesus in, you're inviting him to stay, to be a part of everything in your life. I remember reading a booklet years ago called My Heart, Christ's Home. And it was, uh, it was this story where the, the author just talked about your home being full of all these kinds of rooms that you end up keeping locked and keeping away from Jesus And the author was just saying you need to let him into every area of your life. And you know there are areas of your life where you're keeping Jesus, your sexuality or your money and how you handle your money or your relationships or who you forgive or what it is that you do for a living, whatever it is, you keep Jesus away and you go, you know what, I'll handle this room. I'm okay with this room. And Jesus says, no, no, let me in. Let me in. Listen, if you're here and you have never, ever let Jesus in, he knocks. He knocks. And he's asking you, let me in. Let me in because it's the only way you're ever going to be what you were created to be. But if you have invited him in, what I want you to do is think about the room or rooms that you're keeping him out of right now. You know they're there. In that room, Jesus is saying, just let me in. I will order it the way it's supposed to be ordered. Invite me into the mess that is in that room. Jesus came and the innkeeper missed him. He missed him. Jesus comes to you. Jesus comes to me. Don't miss him. See him for what he is. See yourself for the mess that you are and invite him into the middle of that mess, into the room that you've been keeping from him. It will be the best gift you give and the best gift you receive this Christmas. Make room for Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we come to you and I, uh, I am so grateful I'm grateful that you loved us enough to send Jesus, even though you knew he was going to be rejected. Lord, I pray for every person here. I pray that we will make room for Jesus, for the real Jesus who comes in to reign. I pray for those of us who have invited him in already. I pray that you would help us to open every door in our lives so that he can have access. I pray for those here who may not have opened the door yet. I pray that they will hear his voice. Open the door so they can have a relationship with him. Thanks for your grace that you give us through your son, Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen.